Welcome to Of Slippers and Spindles. I'm Drew. And I'm Cassie. This is a podcast all about fairy tales and fairy tale retellings. Each month we choose a different tale and discuss books, movies, and other media based on that story. In today's episode, we will wrap up our final thoughts on Peter Pan by J.M. Barry, and then introduce our next story, which will be The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum. But first, we have some announcements to make, don't we? We have so much exciting news for you. Yes, I'm I'm pumped. This is going to be fun. Yeah. So our first big exciting announcement is we are launching a Patreon. Yay! Yay! We figured it's time. Everybody else has a Patreon. Why not us? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And we have some fun ideas. And we want to keep it like super accessible. We're not really about being exclusive. Like that's not the goal here. No. So basically for the bare minimum every month like one dollar a month you're pretty much going to get everything Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you're we'd love it if you gave more than that but um you will get access to exclusive polls you will get a monthly themed bookmark download that drew designs you will get access to our notes on every episode which i don't know say that for real Access to our notes. What could be more exciting? Listen, um, you get to see my horrible spelling. I'll have to like make sure my <laughs> handwriting is good. Um, but like the snark, guys, you have to be able to read the snark. Like you don't get half of it in the episodes. We have no idea if anybody is interested in our notes, but our notes can be pretty funny sometimes. And there's sometimes stuff that we like skip over. Yeah, so absolutely. It'll be there if you want it. But here's here's the real fun stuff. We will do some Zoom hangouts with our patrons, and we're going to have an Of Slippers and Spindles book club. So we'll probably do a Zoom meeting like once a month, and our first title, we've already chosen what it was, we asked you for suggestions on our Facebook page, and then kind of disregarded what you said and chose what we wanted (laughs) to do anyway. (laughs) I was really hoping someone would suggest this. But uh, it's a book that just came out. Both of us are really excited about it. And it is The Bone Spindle by Leslie Vetter. I We just got our copy at my library and I immediately like snatched it. And I'm so yes. excited to read this one. It's literally got – it's gender swapped. So the mm-hmm. royal who's under the sleeping curse is a prince and a, an adventuring, wandering maiden – pricks her finger as well and then becomes haunted by the spirit of the sleeping prince and i i'm so excited by that idea so yeah it's been pitched as sleeping beauty meets indiana jones and so both of us are really excited to read this book but we knew that we wouldn't be returning to sleeping beauty anytime soon and so that's where we got the idea to do the book club so instead of additional episodes because honestly we don't really have time in our wacky schedules between cassie's theater and my you know fun hospital stuff to do an extra episode but we can get on a zoom meeting and and chat about books with you guys so that's what we're gonna do Yeah, and we do have a second tier for our $5 a month donators if anybody wants to be a patron at that level. It's everything you get from the first tier. You're also going to get a shout out as an episode sponsor, um, and you'll get a sticker and a handwritten thank you note from each of us. And Mm -hmm. you might be saying, Cassie, Drew, what do you mean by sticker? What kind of sticker will I be getting? I'm so glad you asked, because in addition to launching our Patreon this month, we also now have merchandise. 
Yay! You don't understand. Drew sent me a link to his like initial ideas. And he's like, I don't know if you're going to like any of these. And I looked them over and I went, well, I want all of them. So I think we're on the right track. Yeah, uh, I want them all too. So if you and I like them, hopefully other people will like them as well. We have a few different designs, including our logo and like an ampersand design and this doodle of the characters from Beauty and the Beast that I have been doodling since I worked at Be Our Guest eight years ago. Uh, and I was like, hey, this is could be a fun like design to put on things. So we now have merchandise available. So to find all of the information about Patreon and merchandise, you can check the Facebook group. We will put all of the links there. Also, if you go to our Instagram, there is a link in our bio that links to a link tree that will have links to the Patreon and the merchandise and all the other fun stuff. Yeah, but we really wanted to thank you all for 15,000 downloads, which is kind Can of you believe? crazy and ridiculous. Oh my gosh. I can't. We're um, almost at 17 this, at this point. <laughs> oh, well, but we came up with this idea after 15. So yes. uh, we just thought this was a great way to kind of thank you and take the podcast to the next level. Yes, we are so excited because I think this will bring us like, uh, like we'll get to connect with the listeners even more. Absolutely. So we really hope that you'll consider uh, supporting us over on Patreon and buying merch. And I'm super excited for the day when I see somebody in public wearing one of our t-shirts. I don't know (laughs) when that's going to happen, but that's like the next barometer of success. I would lose my mind. (laughs) Somebody who's not like connected to me. You know what I mean? Yes, I know. I know. One time... My mother, who doesn't listen to the podcast because she doesn't know how, bless her heart. I love her. She's in her 70s. Um, like, But she'll buy a t-shirt because I'll tell her to buy a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Or I'll probably mm-hmm. buy t-shirts for all of my family as Christmas presents. Yeah, I was just um, going to say, my family knows what they're getting for Christmas now. But like some random person that I just happened to encounter on the street wearing our merchandise, that's now the dream. One time I was at Magic Kingdom wearing a t-shirt for a podcast that I listened to, and I saw someone else wearing the same shirt. And it was so cool. I got to talk to them about like this thing and like the idea of that happening to us. I don't think that'll ever happen to us. We are way too niche, but it's still exciting to think about. It is exciting to think about. So that's the next step for us. And we're so glad that you have made that a reality. And we hope that you like what we have to offer. And if you have any other suggestions, we'd love to hear them. Yeah, we are open to suggestions. We really want this to bring us all together. So yeah, those are our big announcements. And now let's wrap up Peter Pan. Let's wrap up Peter Pan. I I just have to say, I have really enjoyed this month. When we got to the end of Into the Woods month, it was like, I have said so much and I could go on, but I have, I have really made my peace with like getting to talk about Into the Woods. With Peter Pan, I feel like I could do three more months on Peter Pan and that should be no surprise to anybody. It's not. I don't know that I could do three more months on Peter Pan, but. I would never ask you to. <laughs> I could do three more months on Into the Woods. Of course. But no, I've enjoyed this month because I like this story. I do. I really like Barry's writing like we talked about way back at the beginning of the month. I think there is such a beautiful messaging and imagery and like a beautiful kind of heartbreak almost to this story. It's just very emotionally 
words are hard. It's been a long day. They are hard. You know, this is exactly what my note is to wrap this up as well. This is like a kind of a final word on Wendy in particular and why I love her so much. Because of the three girls that are whisked away to magical lands, right? We have Wendy, we have Alice, and we have Dorothy. Wendy is the only one who wants to go. Alice falls by accident and Dorothy spends her whole narrative trying to go home. She's whisked away by mistake as well. But Wendy makes an active choice to leave home and see what else is out there. And as a consequence, she gets her heart broken in a way that the other two girls don't really have to deal with. Alice and Dorothy are frequently given lessons to learn in retellings and adaptations, but Wendy's lesson is already built into her story, and that lesson is that change is good. Growing up is part of life, and our lives are better because we experience that pain of leaving childhood behind. Yeah, and I think it's such a a universal message, because Mm, we've all been children, and we've all grown up, and we've all had that moment where we wish that we could hold on to our youth a little bit longer. But I think, hopefully, most of us have also come to the conclusion that it is better to grow up. It is better to go live a full, rich life. But there's always going to be that nostalgia about childhood. And I think that this novel just perfectly captures that. And I think a lot of the adaptations we've looked at this month have also perfectly captured that. Yeah, I agree with you. I do want to give kind of a final, I don't know what you want to call this, rant maybe about Tiger Lily, just to wrap up kind of some thoughts I've been having since we last recorded uh, the Disney episode. Mm -hmm. Tiger Lily, it's such a, it's, it's a big issue. And I was talking to my friend Laura, who I reference all the time, and she happened to be reading a book at the same time that we were recording these episodes called We Have a Little Real Estate Problem, The Unheralded Story of Native Americans and Comedy by Cliff Nesterov. So it's about the history of Native Americans, particularly from what I understand in Hollywood and in comedy. I did not read this book, disclaimer, Um, a lot of this information is from her and from other research I've done based on what, you know, some notes that she sent me. But I just want to give like a little bit of context that the, the, so the first Peter Pan film was a silent film that came out in 1924. It starred Betty Bronson as Peter. And interestingly, Anna Mae Wong played Tiger Lily. And so... Two years later, the Hollywood War Paint Club was formed in 1926, and they were formed with the purpose of lobbying Hollywood studios to hire Native American actors for Native American roles. So this was happening as early as the mid-20s. A lot of this is quoted directly from the book, by the way. Uh, Film studios claimed that they had no choice to use white people because there weren't any Native American actors. And so the War Paint Club countered this by providing a large list of Native American actors, their tribal affiliations, and their special skills. So whenever a film with Native American characterizations was announced, the War Paint Club submitted its recommendations. The Indian Actors Association was later formed in 1936, and their goal was also to keep Indian portrayals and culture from being misrepresented on the screen. So we talked about, you know, how... Westerns were huge on TV. This was already being combated way before any of that happened. And it's interesting to me to compare these years to the right to vote, 
which in the United States, Native Americans who were born in the United States were first given citizenship and the right to vote in 1924, which is the same year that that silent film of Peter Pan came out, which, by the way, we're recording this in 2022, so less than 100 years ago. And in Canada, First Nations people couldn't vote until 1960, which is the same year that Sandra Lee played blonde Tiger Lily in full color on TV. She had been playing the role for six years already, but just the context of like what was happening with Native Americans, their rights as citizens versus their representation, particularly on film and with Tiger Lily and and the Native Americans. And this is all not to mention the issue that we didn't even really talk about this month, which is that including Native people with fairies and mermaids and storybook pirates further others them as fantastical and magical and not even human. It's just baffling to me that especially visual representations of the story have so utterly failed to course correct. I've mentioned before that I know several books that reinterpret Tiger Lily and the Native American's role in this world and in the story, but I just don't understand how Hollywood has so utterly failed. Rooney Mara played Tiger Lily the whitest tiger lily ever since Sandra Lee, I guess, in 2015. That wasn't even that long ago. I feel like my proximity to Peter Pan has like already kind of made me a little bit more aware of these issues. And this month in particular, like has really brought that to the forefront of my mind. And so like normally our normal process when we choose a story is we pick the retelling we want to do and then we establish our criteria after. And so our selections are not made to address the criteria. We want to see how the selections hold up to the criteria without being chosen to match the criteria. But if we ever look at Peter Pan retellings again, we would know in advance that this is something we want to talk about. And so I think we would pick retellings that specifically address this issue because I know of several and I do wish that we had chosen some of them this month. Yeah, and I think that this really shatters that whole argument of oh they were products of their time i i agree like Like, if these organizations existed in the 1930s to try and say hey you need to have native voices playing native roles in the 1930s you can't say oh the disney movie was just a product of its time they didn't know any better they absolutely did these people Mm -hmm. have been here They have been here and been here and been here. Longer than we have. Longer than we have. We just don't listen to them. Exactly. And that's on us. That's our burden. I mean, it's, it's racism flat out. It, it's, it's racism and it's wrong. And especially in today's day and age when we are, you know, pushing the issue that, oh, here comes my puppy. We're pushing the issue that representation matters. And that is something that I like really believe in that, you know, what we see, we've talked about this before. Stories should be windows and doors. Is that, is that, is that the saying? Yep. You need window stories and you need door stories. You need stories that allow you to glimpse into the life of people who are other from you, but you also need to see yourself represented positively in stories. So window and mirror, that's the, that's the term. Window and mirror. That's what it is. Yeah. But yes, exactly. Like, 
I just cannot believe, I mean, I guess I can believe that nobody has, has done this right yet. Yeah, white people don't learn. It takes us a very, very long time. And Clearly. that's a problem. Yeah, it is a problem. It is a problem. And some of the adaptations that we looked at this month have taken some steps, but I don't think but any of them have taken enough steps. I, I agree with you. We've seen baby steps. The babiest of baby steps. I do want to once again recommend the book Sisters of the Never See by Cynthia Latish Smith. It recontextualizes the entire existence of the Native Americans on Neverland in a way that is really profound. And it's it's written for middle schoolers, so it's an easy read. There are definitely others that I can recommend. I do think that in particular, if you modernize the story and you remove the characters from Neverland, that would be such an easy fix, right? Because yeah. you're going to change fairies, you're going to change the mermaids, you're going to change the pirates. Naturally, you're going to change how the Native Americans are represented as well. Absolutely. I agree. Cool. Cassie, do you have any ideas of how you would retell Peter Pan? I have been thinking about this and thinking about this. And normally, if I'm going to retell a story, it's because I want to fill some kind of gap Mm. or I have like a really strong idea for it. But with Peter Pan, like the gap that I think needs to be filled is a gap that I also know I am not qualified to fill, which is this issue of Tiger Lily. Like I would love to see an interpretation that kind of puts her at the forefront and there's a book about tiger yes. tiger lily i i have it ordered it's like literally in the mail to me i'm really interested to see how that goes yeah but um i don't feel like that is a version of the story that i have the authority to write sure as a very white woman and so i don't know i haven't i don't have any firm ideas on this one because i don't know what i have to contribute to the conversation that hasn't been done already Mm, okay that's fair so that's kind of where i'm sitting i i it is much easier for me to think of ways that i would adapt simpler stories like your basic fairy tales than a novel that is already so richly and complexly written and so that's why i kind of struggle with alice and with peter because there's so much already so put me in a situation We'll touch on this in a little while. Put me in a situation where I have to write a novel. Like, I have to come up with something, and I probably could. Um, but as of right now, I don't have I don't have any firm ideas. But what about you, Drew, Peter Pan connoisseur? <laughs> I have a story that I am actively working on. It is very personal to me. It means a lot. Basically... I mean, the conceit is, I am Wendy, right? Like, no surprise there. As of right now, it's titled Peter and Wendell. It could be titled An Awfully Big Adventure. I go back and forth between the two. It's a modernization, and it is kind of marrying the story of Peter Pan with elements of my own life. So the idea is, you know, I am going through chemotherapy right now. I have colon cancer. And so kind of my idea was that the Wendy character, who is Wendell now, is forced to face the idea of growing up and forced to face the idea of mortality because he is also facing colon cancer. And so he goes to his first chemotherapy session and there's another boy there and he asks, boy, why are you crying? 
and so it's a reversal of of that line but it, it would be the idea of of this wendell this wendy character facing a different kind of growing up and peter would be there to help him through it and I have some really interesting ideas of how I would use a hook character in this and how the darling family all fits in and Tinkerbell. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm working on. That sounds beautiful. Yeah. I don't know if it would ever go anywhere, but it means a lot to me and I'm excited to be writing it. I'm glad. Yeah. Do you have any other final thoughts on Peter Pan? I don't really. I mean, I love I love this story, but I think we have said quite a bit about it over the course of this month. We have. It's time for a new story. It's time for a new story. So let's leave Neverland behind. And let's go to one more magical land, the marvelous land. The last one left. Let's go to Oz. Let's go to Oz. Here's, here's where I would like to start before we get into the history of The Wizard of Oz. There is this interesting phenomenon that you and I have picked up as we have gone from Wonderland to Neverland to Oz. And as we have looked through lists and lists and lists of retellings and prequels and sequels, and that's what I want to talk about, is that it is so interesting to me to look at how creators approach retelling Alice and Peter and Oz, because from from what you and I have seen, they like to reboot and retell Alice they like to write prequels for Peter Pan, and they like to write sequels for The Wizard of Oz. There are, of course, exceptions to these, and Peter does get a lot of sequels too, but this is like overwhelmingly the case, and I think it's really fascinating, and I'm not quite sure why it happens. I do think for Alice, people want to make sense of the nonsense, so they're more interested in rearranging the elements of the existing story. And then with Peter and Oz, those stories are so much more structured. So I think people are drawn to looking at what's happening before and after instead of what's happening during. With Peter, I talked about how we actually know so much about what happens in Neverland before Wendy's journey. I talked about in the Starcatcher episode. So I think people are drawn to retelling that in the same way they're retelling like traditional fairy tales. Like I said before, they have these pieces that they want to play with and see how they can fit together in different ways. And with Oz, I really believe that Wicked made such an impact on pop culture. No one even wants to touch the idea of making a prequel to Oz. So they just turn to what happens after. What do you think? D- d- do my theories hold up? I think there's definitely something to be said for these theories that you have. And I think it, it has to do a lot with adaptations and retellings come out of the questions that we have when we first experience those stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have Alice, you read Alice, and your predominant question is, who are these people? What the heck is what, going on? <laughs> what is going on in this world? Yeah, yeah, you're right. And you read, you know, these other stories, and you have different questions. Yeah, that's a great point. And so, I mean, I think that that's a a big part of it is adaptation is informed by the questions we're left with from the original story. Yeah. I don't know with Oz though, because Al Frank Baum wrote 13 more books. So we know he what sure happened did. after Oz. <laughs> Let's talk but about Al Frank Baum. We're not going to talk about all 14 books. <laughs> Let's just do Let one. Let me tell you something. <laughs> 
Well, let's just do one and and let me talk a little bit about why. Mm-hmm. So this novel uh, was first published in 1900 and it was then quickly adapted into a 1902 Broadway musical. Right. And the success of those two projects is what prompted Baum to write 13 more books. So The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, which is the first novel, was not intended to be the start of a series. No. It was intended to stand on its own to be this one adventure that this one little girl went on this one time. And then later he was like, well, let's go back and see what's happening. But because of that, you can't read the first book as if it is setting up what's going to come later because that wasn't the intention when it was bo- when it was written. The rules of the world are not consistent after this first book. Like, no one can die in Oz. But also, very famously, we see at least two characters die in this book. Yeah, and the ways that Dorothy gets to Oz in the other books <laughs> are wild and wacky and don't make any sense with the whole journey that she goes on in the first one trying to get home. Yeah, it's very much written as like this standalone adventure. And then there was just so much demand that he had to keep going back to the point that he like tried to write in ways to say, I can no longer access information from Oz. And so these stories are done. But the demand kept coming, and so he had to write another way to get back. And I I love this because it's, like, one of the first instances we have of, like, the power of fandom. (laughs) So I think a a slightly better known example of this is um, Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes, where he didn't want to write Sherlock Holmes anymore, so he killed him. And the uproar from the fans (laughs) was so great that he literally had to write another book figuring out how Sherlock faked his death and that he wasn't actually dead and then continued to write Sherlock books because he was getting, like, threatening letters from his fans who didn't want Sherlock to be dead. Fandom has always existed, my friends. Like <laughs> You're right. We haven't always called it that, but it has always been there. So where do we want to start with this story? Well, Should we start? <laughs> I would like to start uh, by talking about what your personal connection to mm-hmm, The Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. is. What is yeah. your history with this story? The Wizard of Oz is not quite as important to me as Peter Pan, but it is pretty big. I obviously have a huge Peter Pan collection. I have not a huge Wizard of Oz one, but like it fills a full bookshelf. So I really like this story. It's very important to like my family. I remember watching it for the first time and being afraid of the witch and the flying monkeys. I remember like seeing this ornament of Dorothy in the Hallmark store and thinking it was Belle from Beauty and the Beast before I even knew what the Wizard of Oz was. And then I grew up reading the books all of the time. I played a munchkin. When I was 11 years old, I was one of the Lollipop Guild munchkins along with my brother. And then I played the Scarecrow when I was in high school. And then obviously I have connections to Wicked as well. But as far as the Wizard of Oz, it's one of those that's like very much tied to my childhood and growing up. Oh, I also saw uh, a stage production of it that like toured the country and it had Mickey Rooney as the wizard and Eartha Kitt played the witch at the beginning of the tour. Eartha Kitt was gone by the time we saw it and Mickey Rooney was sick the night we saw it. But I have like 
this distinct memory. I can remember like the yellow brick road was a light up road and the tornado was so amazing with like the characters flying around and stuff. And there's actually a video of this production on YouTube that if you visit the Facebook group, I'll put a link there. So yeah, I, I really have a lot of personal connection to the Wizard of Oz. And now Cassie, what is your connection to the Wizard of Oz? Well, the Wizard of Oz was the first play I was ever in. Aww. But not the Judy Garland musical version that everybody knows. Oh. Uh, my school did a different version. For a long time, I wondered if my director had like added scenes into it. Because I was seven. I was in second grade. And my school district every other year would do a big district-wide musical where they would pick a show that had parts for little kids in it. So that they could involve the elementary school students. And there were three elementary schools in my district. There was Highland North, Highland East, and Highland West. And all of the kids from Highland East were the Munchkins. And all of the kids from Highland West were the Winkies and the Flying Monkeys. And my school was Highland North. And we were the citizens of Oz. Oh, that is so cute. And so I was on stage for five minutes. I was going to say. <laughs> At the age of seven, I had to provide entirely my own costume. They're just like, wear green. Right. <laughs> and I had one line. Oh. And so this was why, this was why, like, for years, I I thought my director had just written a scene to add my school into the story. Because, like, I didn't watch most of the rest of the show. I did my five minutes. And then I sat in the green room and watched movies for like the rest of the show. So I had the only memories I have of the show are the scene that I was in, which has never appeared in any, you know, version of the musical because everything that everybody does is always the Judy Garland musical adapted for the stage. But the scene that I was in was we were soldiers guarding the gates of Oz. And one of the soldiers didn't want to be a soldier anymore and was going to desert. And we were all trying to convince that soldier not to desert. And I had a line, and I was so excited and proud because I was seven years old, and it was the first thing I'd ever do, done, and I got picked to say this line. And so my very first onstage line was, we'll give you a medal if you do. Bravo. Bravo. Thank you. But I, I found out my brother tracked it down later, and it is, it like, it's a legitimate mm -hmm. play. It's not that my director wrote a scene for us. Um, there, It is another version of The Wizard of Oz for the stage. That has this scene in it. And so, yeah, so it was my first play. It was my first, you know, onstage role that wasn't like a class play or anything. And I know that my parents read some of the books to me. I don't think I've ever read the whole series. Yeah, I've read a few of them, but never the whole series. Um, I know my younger brothers read the whole series. But I've I've read the first few. I've seen the movie, of course. Uh, when I was a kid... There was an American Girl magazine episode that did like a bunch of trivia about the Wizard of oh, Oz movie. Oh, yeah. That I, I remember that. Poured over. So I was like this nine year old walking around saying, Did you know a guy hung himself on the set of The Wizard of Oz? And you can no, see he in the background. No, he didn't. I, I know, I know. But like, you know, yes. the nine year old going for the most macabre interpretation. Yes. And like, did you know that the horses in the Emerald City were colored with jello powder? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I knew all the trivia. Yes. Likewise. <laughs> from this movie because of that issue of that magazine. But I think my biggest connection to The Wizard of Oz was in college. 
in college, my favorite professor uh, from the honors program, he offered an honor seminar on The Wizard of Oz. If this sounds familiar, it's because I said the same thing when we talked about Sleeping Beauty, because the same professor also offered his honor seminar on Sleeping Beauty. And so, but Wizard of Oz came first. And so I took that class because he's my favorite professor. And we read the novel and analyzed it and chatted about it. And then we watched and read all these adaptations. So basically like this podcast, but I got a grade for it. Um, <laughs> and it was a really fun class for me personally, because it was very small. There were only six students in it. It was me and my roommate and best friend at the time, and then four other students. And then my roommate had to drop out three weeks in because she had a really crazy schedule that semester and couldn't she had to drop something. And so then it was just me and these four other kids, and none of them wanted to talk ever at any point. And so it was literally just me hanging out with my favorite professor for three hours a week talking about The Wizard of Oz. That sounds so fun. It was a lot of fun. And of course, our final project for that class was to create our own adaptation of The Wizard of Oz. So I know we usually save that for the end, but I have written a novel adaptation of The Wizard of Oz that combines the story and also my love of theater. Um, And so it takes place backstage at a theater. And Dorothy and her companions are the stagehands for a production of The Wizard of Oz. It's very meta. (laughs) And I kind of used it to channel all of the things that I had issues with from the book and from the movie. Yes, Um, this is why I was laughing when I asked you what your experience with The Wizard of Oz is. Because I know that you have... Some quabbles, quibbles, quabbles, I I don't know. I have a couple quibbles, but here's the thing. Put that on a t-shirt, honestly, Drew. Here's the thing. Yeah, Like, we need a here's the thing t-shirt. I've been waiting for you to bring this up because I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I think just everybody who podcasts says, here's the thing. (laughs) I don't think that's unique to us. I know, but my coworker called me out on it. I don't think it's unique to me either, but anyway, the thing for me is... I don't dislike this story. This story is fine. The world is interesting. I think that it needs a stronger editor. (laughs) I think that there are parts of the story that need to be streamlined. And there are parts of the story that just bother me because it's like the obvious way to write this scene was right in front of you and you didn't do it. Right. But, you know, overall, like it was written in 1900, you know, it's still kind of working towards that evolution of children's literature that we've talked about the last couple of months. So like, I don't fault it for that necessarily, but it is, I have the same kind of attitude towards this story that I have honestly towards Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which is, I think if this hadn't been made into the Judy Garland movie in 1939, I don't know that this story would have entered the public, like, collective sphere as intensely as it did and i feel the same way about snow white with the disney movie i think if disney hadn't made this movie and it hadn't been so successful that that fairy tale wouldn't be as well known as it is and i don't think that this book would necessarily be as well known as it is today like yes it was very popular when it first came out i know that's what you're gonna say (laughs) It was very popular when it first Cassie, came out, she, she, think, she just keeps talking because she's, she sees me I can see uh, your face. sitting here on the edge of my seat waiting to respond. Like he just wants to talk. I know. It's okay. It's okay. It's because um, I, I know you have this opinion and I have been waiting since Cinderella month for you to bring this opinion up so that I can I can respond. Because I think 
of all the many intelligent, wonderful things that you say, Cassie, uh-huh. this is the most preposterous thing I have ever heard in my life. Here's the thing again, Drew. Uh-huh. Neither you nor I can ever prove our position on this. Well, here, here's my opinion uh, on this. First of all, the books were so popular that he tried to stop writing them twice and they kept being demanded for. Like, this story was so popular. And on top of that, they immediately made it a musical. Two years later, they made this book a musical. Can you imagine that happening today? No, it takes a decade for a story to become a musical. And the Judy Garland film, whether it was with Judy Garland or not, was always going to be made. There was no way there was never going to be a big Hollywood production version of this story. So whether it was that movie or another one, that that moment in history was always going to happen. And so it was always going to enter the public consciousness in a way that it did. I do think that that movie made some particular choices that really solidified its place in our consciousness. But I just think like you can't say if that movie never happened, XYZ, because that movie was always going to happen from the moment this book was published. That's fair. I just, I don't know. For me, I understand the appeal of Peter Pan. I understand why people love that story. Mm-hmm. I don't get why this story was <laughs> so beloved. I don't understand. I think a lot of it has to do with the Americana of it all. That's, because uh, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, because like Bear, not Barry, Baum himself, like talked about how he wanted this to feel like a fairy tale and he wanted it to feel like an American fairy tale because that didn't really exist yet. So he intentionally mixes traditional fairy tale elements like witches and wizards and fairies and talking animals with Midwestern imagery like cornfields and scarecrows. And I think that is like a big part of it. I guess. <laughs> I just think that it is almost impossible to not improve on this story by adapting it. I agree, but I think you could say that about most fairy tales. Yeah, I guess. Fine, fine. I just, I honestly, like, I could take or leave this original story. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the original story. Yeah, I think there are a lot of really good adaptations out there, you know, and I, I've i written one, you know? Mm-hmm. And... <gasps> that should be our book club book. Ooh, we should read my book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe that will be like, uh, that could be a bonus thing, like access to your book, whether we talk about it or not. I mean, listen, it doesn't need to be a bonus thing. If anybody wants to read it, I'll share it with You'll just put it out there. <laughs> I'll share it with people. But because I am very proud of it. I'm very proud of what I wrote. I want to read it. I had access to I've it once. I sent it to you. I know, but I don't have it anymore. <laughs> It's okay. Uh, before we release this episode, I will probably go through the most recent draft and just like yeah. find little places to clean. Because I did, I actually did make some notes while I read The Wonderful Wizard of Oz this time. I was like, oh, oh I think I got that factually wrong and I need to update that in my <laughs> story somehow. Like I glossed over this detail when I was making some kind of snarky point. Because <laughs> um, the book is full of snarky points. And I will, I'm going to address a lot of the things that I talk about in the novel. When we talk about this book in this episode and when we talk about the Judy Garland movie in that episode. Let's talk about this story. Let's talk about it. There's a lot of story here. So we start with Dorothy 
who has no last name. She will get her last name later in the musical. But Dorothy Gale lives in Kansas with Aunt M, Uncle Henry, and Toto. It's very gray and very dry. Yeah, and just like Alice, we are on our way to Oz very quickly. Super fast. We do get a little bit more, like, not nearly as much as we get with the Darlings, but we at least get a stronger sense of, like, where Dorothy's from and what her life is like, even if we get nothing from Aunt Em and Uncle Henry. I did like that the contrast of gray versus color is present inherently in the novel. Mm. Um, So it's easy to kind of think, oh, that was just something that was done for the movie to show off the Technicolor. But he spends a lot of time talking about how gray and flat and dull Kansas is. And a lot of time describing how colorful and fruitful and beautiful the countryside is in Oz. Yeah, so that contrast is like, that's just inherent. Like Mm -hmm. it was a very natural choice to do the black and white and then bloom into Technicolor. I have to try really hard in this not to also talk about the Judy Garland movie because... We'll get there. The iconic retelling. It's going to get its own episode. Yeah, my first note is actually, I would like to fact check your Cyclone info, sir. And then I have several offshoots that I added periodically throughout the rest of the movie of other things I would like to fact check. But he gives this very scientific explanation as the house is flying through the Cyclone about why... Toto like falls out the trap door, but like doesn't fall down into the cyclone. And he talks about how, well, in the eye of the cyclone, everything is, you know, such and such. And there's air pressure. And I'm like, dude, don't use scientific technical language if it's not accurate, because I am going to want to fact check. If you're just like a cyclone picked up the house and they were fine because of magic, I'd have been like, fine, whatever. That's that's cool. I don't care. But once you start talking science, I start fact checking science. I mean, that's fair. He didn't need to include it. I don't know how much about the weather L. Frank Baum knew in the year 1989 when he was writing this. 1989? 1889. 1899. I don't know. Whatever. Tornado. It takes the house. It lands Toto and Dorothy. It They're flying for a very long time. It lands them in Munchkinland. She meets the Witch of the North, who is not Glinda. Mm Mm-hmm. The Witch of the North. She's a little old lady. She's a little old lady. Later, they talk about a Witch of the North whose name is Guyalette. I don't know if this is supposed to be Guyalette or if that was an older Witch of the North. She's a princess. Guyalette is specifically a princess who who does magic. I think they're meant to be separate characters. Regardless, we're not given a name for this little old Witch of the North. Mm-hmm. But they're all being very straight up about yeah you killed this witch good job thank you and dorothy is horrified i didn't mean to like well you did it anyway so thank you the witch's magic is like very unclear yes because she gives dorothy this kiss to protect her but also like she has to summon a chalk slate that will tell her to send dorothy to the emerald city like she doesn't think of that on her own she has to summon this slate with chalk written on it yeah and They give her the silver shoes that the Witch of the East had, but, and this is a really important thing that most people, I think, aren't familiar with because of the predominance of the musical, they don't make her wear the shoes. They just are like, here's your spoils of war. She decides to wear them (laughs) because she doesn't think her boots are up to the journey. Right. So she makes the choice to wear these shoes, and she's told that the shoes are magic, but nobody knows what they do. 
to the point that like we never really find out what they do. Well, we find out at the very end. We find out kind one of. tiny little piece we of kind, We find out one thing that they do. But yes. everybody else is just like, yeah, they're really powerful magically, but we don't know how. So Dorothy is going to head off to the Emerald City on the Road of Yellow Bricks with Toto. I think it's really interesting the passage of time in this book. Like, it takes Dorothy days and days to get to the Emerald City and then days and days to get to the Witch's Castle and then days and days to get to glinda's castle like and and bomb takes care to like explain okay she stayed at box house this first night she found the tin woodman's cottage and stayed there she slept under like we get very clear explanation of like where she sleeps and what she eats throughout the entire journey which makes me think that he must have been frustrated with something in alice in wonderland and felt like there was no explanation there yeah, she spends a lot of time – he spends a lot of time telling us what Dorothy ate. Yes. And I – again, I don't know that this child is eating enough to actually sustain her, but at least we're paying attention to that. Yeah. <laughs> I also thought it was interesting. They call it the City of Emeralds for, like, the first few chapters before switching over to calling it the Emerald City. I know. I think that's odd, too, because in my mind, they call it the, the City of Emeralds the whole way through, and I was surprised to notice that they start calling it Emerald City at one point. So then she meets the scarecrow. Mm-hmm. He wants a brain. He wants a brain. Um, and on page 35 of my novel, the scarecrow says, There's only one thing in the world I am afraid of. It's a lighted match. It's the last line of a chapter, so this is a, a sentence that's given a great deal of importance. It will not be important. And nothing is ever done with it. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess you're right. Fortunately, we have retellings that will fix that. Yeah. What was interesting to me on this reread was how many of the lines are actually in the Judy Garland movie. I was really surprised mm-hmm. to find m- many more of them than I expected. And that's that's obviously one of them. Um, I will say I am grateful that they cut the line where Dorothy describes Toto as a meat dog. <laughs> because one of the, the – either the Scarecrow or the Tin Man, I don't remember who, is asking – what is the dog made of? And she's like, oh, I suppose he's a meat dog. And I'm like, thanks, I hate it. We did not hate need that. that description. <laughs> All right, so Dorothy is now on the road with the Scarecrow, and we're going to meet the Tin Man, who wants a heart, of course. We get a big, long explanation about how the Tin Woodman became the Tin Woodman, and then we're we're off again, and now we're going to meet the Lion, who wants some courage. And frequently. Throughout this novel, frequently, we are shown in the interactions that Dorothy has with the companions and in the interactions that the companions have with the people that they're encountering, we are shown many, many times that all three of these companions already have the thing that they're searching for. Yes. And again, I will accept this to a certain degree because this was written for children So the repetition, like really making sure that that lesson sticks. However, at a certain point, I do sit there going, okay, I get it. Thank you. Let's move on. It doesn't bother me because like you said, it's written for children. It really does go out of its way to say like the scarecrow is the one coming up with the plans. The Tidwood man cries every time he steps on a beetle and the lion is the one who bravely faces whatever thing is before them. Yeah. So, so 
it is made very clear that their desire for these things is partially born out of a lack of understanding of what it actually means to have those things. So like, just because you don't have a literal brain, just because you don't have a literal heart, doesn't mean that you can't be smart doesn't mean that you can't have compassion and love for other things. Mm -hmm. And it's also projecting to us that Dorothy has the thing that she needs as well. She doesn't know that the silver slippers will carry her home. She has no way of knowing that, but that's kind of what it's foreshadowing. Yeah. That she also has the thing that she's searching for. Yeah. So they are going to come across a ditch that they jump across and they come across another ditch that the Tin Man chops down a tree and they they cross the tree while they're escaping from the Kaleida monsters. Then there's a whole scene with a river where the Scarecrow gets stuck in a river and there's is saved so by There's so many stork. side quests. There's just, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that's not necessary to the story at all except kind of solidifying the relationship that these four have and talking like kind of showing you how dangerous a place Oz is and helping us kind of understand why Dorothy wants to go home. Um, eventually they make it to the poppy fields and the poppy fields um, is very dangerous to Dorothy and uh, lion because they are, you know, meat creatures. <laughs> flesh and blood. They use the word so flesh and blood a lot. Flesh and blood. Um, and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow aren't. And so Dorothy and the Lion are affected by the poppies. And, and the queen- eventually the queen, yeah, they save the queen of the field mice. And she gets her mice to go rescue the lion. Mm-hmm. Because Scarecrow and Tin Man couldn't save him. And then on page 108 of my novel, the queen of the field mice says, if you should ever have need of us again, we'll come to your aid. She does come to their aid once more. She does. Don't make that face. She shows up. I don't know that she comes to their aid. Eh, it's better than the uh, than the light and match thing. It is better than the light and match thing because, yes, they do reappear at some point. However, when they reappear, all they do is tell them to go ask somebody else for help. Yeah. It could have been used in a much more dynamic way is what I'm saying. Yeah, sure, sure. I agree with you. They are finally going to make it to the Emerald City. They are required to wear green glasses. They're all given fancy rooms to stay in. And they are going to have to meet the wizard one by one. Cassie, take it away. (laughs) You know I want to talk about it. I also, I want to point this out because this had escaped my notice until this reread. They're not just given green glasses, Drew. They're locked into them. They have green glasses locked onto their heads yes they cannot be removed yes yes that is correct okay so they meet the wizard each individually and there's this whole thing running through when people talk like nobody's ever seen the wizard the wizard's never taken an audience before nobody knows what he looks like everybody says he can shift his form and he can appear as anything that he wants to so eventually he finds out that Dorothy killed the Witch of the East and has the silver shoes, and so he agrees to grant an audience to all of the companions, and he takes a different form with every single one of them. The forms that he takes are a giant head, the iconic one that we all think of, because Mm -hmm. that's the one that everybody condenses this scene and just has him meet everybody at once. So we see the giant head all the time in every adaptation. But in this version with each of the other ones, he also takes the form of a ball of fire, a beautiful lady, 
and a terrifying monster beast. Now, Drew. (laughs) You don't need to explain it to me. I know. I know. If you have three companions, one of whom is terrified of fire, one of whom is terrified of monsters and beasts, and one of whom lacks a heart because it got chopped off. And so he Because of his love for a lady love in Uh his past. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How do you think we should assign these identities in order to inspire the most fear and intimidation? I think we should assign them willy-nilly. It shouldn't matter who gets what. It shouldn't matter who gets well, good, you're on the same page as Al Frank Baum. So the scarecrow meets the beautiful lady, the tin man meets the terrifying beast, and the lion meets the ball of fire. Which makes no sense. Obviously, the scarecrow should meet the fire, the tin woodman should meet the lady, and the lion should meet the beast. Like, if the purpose was not to intimidate them, like, if that's not why he chose those forms, or if, like, you could make the argument that, like, he didn't want to scare them so much that they wouldn't listen to what he had to say, then pick completely different things. Like, don't pick things that could correspond to the fears so specifically of the people. Correspond to that. So specifically. It's just, it's one of those things where I just sit there and go, it was right in front of you. You were so close. The version that makes sense was right there. I think the only thing I can come up with is that, like, he wanted the next person To be prepared for the thing that should scare them. And then they're thrown off by something else. So like the scarecrow meets the lady. So the tin woodman is like, okay, it's going to be a lady. I'm going to be ready for this. But then it's a beast. And then the lion is like, okay, I'm afraid of these terrible, horrible beasts. So I'm going to be ready to face a beast. And then it's a ball of fire. Like that's the only explanation I can like even possibly come up with. Because you're right. This is... This is entirely mixed up. Someone should fix this. Yeah, someone should. I didn't. I don't include this scene in. Yeah, my no story. one does. But actually, um, maybe maybe someone will. Maybe someone will. In my version, there is never a wizard. Oh. Leading into my next point, I talk a lot, explore a lot about the theatricality of Oz, especially the Emerald City. Mm. Because everything that's happening in the Emerald City is so themed and so performative. Everything that the wizard does is so performative. Even when he's in his actual, like, self in front of Dorothy and the companions. He's still constantly putting on a show. And you see that with a lot of the people in Oz that you meet. There's just this inherent theatricality of what's going on, especially in the Emerald City. Because the people there, like, they like the mystery. They like the fact that they've never met their wizard. It proves how powerful he is. So they're 100% buying into this performance. They want this performance. Yeah. And that's kind of a fascinating look at the world of Oz. And it's where the seed of my adaptation was kind of born out of. Mm, I love that. But basically, the wizard says, hey, I can send you home. I can give you all these things that you want. But before you do it, you have to go murder the witch of the (laughs) West. And this tiny girl child is like, hey, I'd really rather not do that. I don't want to murder people. And the wizard's like, you already have, so you can do it again. And so off they go, heading to the West to find the Wicked Witch. But the Wicked Witch has one eye. That is like a telescope. And so she sees them coming. And so she sends 
wolves after them. She sends crows. She sends bees. She sends the winkies. And then finally, she sends the winged monkeys. Okay, but before we get there, let me ask you another question, Drew. (laughs) Okay. If you're, you know, going to send three adversaries... Yes. Okay. Group you're right. With three companions. You're right. I caught this this time. And one is scro is crows. Mm. Who should fight the crows? The scarecrow. Okay. Check mark. We got that one. We good got job. that one. Okay. Good. <laughs> the bees. Who should fight the bees? The Tin Man. Good. Check mark. We got that one too. Who should fight the wolves? Toto. <laughs> You might think the lion, right? He's well matched for these beasts. No. We go back to the Tin, the tin Man, Man also does the wolves. <laughs> yep. So the Tin Man takes down two of them, the Scarecrow takes down one, and the lion does nothing. Yep. That's that's about right. So yeah, so the Winkies and the Winged Monkeys are the ones who eventually get the group separated. They tear the scarecrow apart they drop the tin man and dent him so they can't move anymore she wants the lion to use as her like muscle basically and she says kill the little girl but they can't kill the girl because she has the blessing of the witch of the north and then the witch of the west finds out that she has the shoes and in this version the witch of the east and the witch of the west aren't sisters i don't think nope no relation yeah there's no connection there she just wants the shoes because the shoes are powerful and so ultimately like she kind of enslaves dorothy she makes her work as a servant and she places an invisible bar low to the ground so dorothy will trip over the bar and fall out of one of her shoes which works and dorothy is so upset about this that she picks up the bucket of water and throws it upon the Wicked Witch, and she melts away like brown sugar. Dorothy has a habit throughout this whole novel of stumbling into the right answer by accident. (laughs) Yeah, that's so true. Like, nothing that she does is on purpose. Everything happens by chance. I have never seen somebody, even Wicked, nobody satisfyingly explains why the water melts the witch. We're told within the space of like two sentences that Dorothy only takes the shoes off at night and when she takes a bath and that the witch can't come get them at night because she's afraid of the dark and she can't come get them when Dorothy's in the bath because she's afraid of water, which that second one doesn't make sense because you're not going near the bath, you're going near the shoes. And the first one, like, okay, there's a reason for her to be afraid of water, clearly, because it melts her. We don't have a good reason why, but it does. So, like, that's a tangible fear. But this whole thing about being afraid of the dark was just weird to me. And it just felt like, I need a reason why she can't just sneak in while Dorothy's sleeping and take the shoes. No, she's afraid of the dark. Are we trying to infantilize her like Mr. Darling? Maybe. We're about to kill her, so I don't know how comparing her to a child would, (laughs) you know. So I just wish that if water is so dangerous to her, that there was something about the dark also being equally dangerous to her, or that we just came up with a better explanation than that. This is something I think that the movie does better. Like, it answers the question of why the witch can't just take the shoes better. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, so we have the Wicked Witch of the West, who's like our main villain in this story, who is defeated by accident on page 165. Of my version of the novel. Do you know how many pages are in my version of the novel, Drew? 200? 285. 
<laughs> and we are on page 165. So we got a long way to go. And our villain is dead. And we also have never met the villain before. This is our first no. encounter with her. And uh, so Dorothy has the winkies. They're like, thanks for freeing us. Uh, and she's like, cool, can you go like make sure my friends are alive again? And so they go and they rebuild the scarecrow and they rebuild the tin man. So they they do that and she gets the lion back and then they all just kind of hang out at the castle for a while until they're like, oh, right, we were supposed to be killing this witch for the wizard and then going back to him. And so like, well, then we should go. And so Dorothy starts preparing for this journey. So she starts going through the Wicked Witch of the West's cupboards and she finds the golden cap, which is what the witch uses to control the winged monkeys. Mm -hmm. And Dorothy just just takes it because it's pretty. Dorothy really is over here accumulating objects of power from Oz (laughs) just because they're aesthetically pleasing. (laughs) What a mood. (laughs) What a mood. Yes, so Dorothy now has the golden cap. They are going to head back to the Emerald City, but they get lost. And so they summon the Queen of the Field Mice, who says, I can't really help you, but you have the golden cap. So why don't you just use the winged monkeys to fly back to the Emerald City? Yeah, that's the weakest attempt at a callback. It's the weakest attempt. Like, we could have cut out the field mice by giving Dorothy some basic observation skills because the rhyme to summon the monkeys like literally the instructions of how the cap works are inscribed inside the cap this is a theme with many magical objects throughout all 14 books the the magic words are usually just printed right there for you to use right on them yeah right on them yep so that's my problem with the field mice it's like yes okay technically they come back but they don't do anything. Cassie, this book has much worse transgressions than the field mouse cult. I know. I'm aware. <laughs> I've taken notes on most of them. I'm calling them out. So we call the winged monkeys. They fly us to the Emerald City. They tell us the story of how they became enslaved by the cap, which is really kind of a nothing burger story. And then we get back to Oz. And we learn that Oz is just a man behind a screen. Yeah. Again, performative, again, theatrical. Mm-hmm. And at one point, though, when they, they've discovered him, like they've uncovered the secret, and he says the line, I'm really a very good man. I'm just a very bad wizard. And again, like, another line you? I was surprised to see is directly in the Judy Garland movie. But go but on. Po- point of interest, you sent a little girl on a murder quest. Are you a good man? Oh. He is not a good man. He also, like, if you read into the further books, he, like, overthrew the king. He had the the heir, the princess, sent away with a witch. Like, he is not a good man. And I'm yeah. really surprised that there's not a version, uh, not a huge version, where the wizard is, like, an all-in-all-out villain. Right. In, in Wicked, he kind of is, but, like, he's, like, the manipulative you know, political villain. I can't believe there's not one where it's like, this dude is evil. Yeah. And like, again, what you're citing are books that were written later. Right. There wasn't right. an intention to write those. I think that was Bomb going, hey, I wrote this guy and he wasn't very good. So maybe I should make use of that. But like in this novel, which is a standalone thing, that line is never countered by anything. Like n- 
there's even a point later where Dorothy goes, he's right. He was a very good man and just a very bad wizard. It's like, but he's not. <laughs> he's done nothing good he's at all. He's done nothing to help you. He finally builds this balloon to try and get her back to Kansas. And then when it like leaves without her, he's like, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. And I'm like, there is. Because eventually you're going to run out of hot air. Like, you got the hot air in there. I don't know. <laughs> this guy's awful. He's horrible. Yeah. No, I know. The wizard is a bad guy. He is a bad, bad guy. But yeah, so he's dismayed when they return because he didn't expect them to return. And now he has to actually make good on his promises. And so... Again, because, you know, these three already have everything that they're looking for. All he has to do is give them a facsimile. So he stuffs the scarecrow's head full of uh, oatmeal and he puts a little silken sawdust heart inside the tin man's chest and he gives the lion some colored milk to drink. And he's like, there you go. And they're like, cool, great. We love it. And then Dorothy's like, and now I go back to Kansas. And he goes, that one's not as easy to just like, <laughs> that one I'm actually going to have to think about. Yep, yep. And he comes up with the plan that they will make a new balloon and the balloon will carry them over the deadly desert. And he doesn't know if it will take them back to Kansas, but they'll certainly be out of Oz. And so they they all work together. They create this balloon and they're going to fly away in it. This is a horrible plan. It's it's just a horrible plan. <laughs> and that's my note. This is a horrible plan. I hope he crashed in the desert. Uh, spoiler alert, he did not. <laughs> but like, seriously, I'm glad Dorothy did not end up in a flying balloon with this man. I do not believe yeah, he had her I welfare agree. at heart. I, I agree with you. I don't think it would have ended <laughs> yes. well for her. I know, I know. So yes, Toto chases a kitten, so Dorothy is chasing Toto and misses the balloon's launch. The wizard leaves the scarecrow in charge, and so now they're all trying to think, okay, now what do we do? How do we get Dorothy back to Kansas? They ask the soldier with the green whiskers what they should do, and he says, you should go to Glinda. Glinda's the Witch of the South. has never been mentioned by name. Never been mentioned Until before. this moment. And she's, we're told that she is the most powerful being in Oz, so I really don't know why we didn't go to her in the first place. <laughs> and the journey to get to Glinda takes so long and does nothing. Yeah. Like, at least the journey on the Yellow Brick Road, like, we're seeing those examples of the Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Lion having a brain, a heart, and courage. This really, the only thing that it minorly accomplishes is giving the lion a place to go at the end of the story. Yeah, but it's like four or five chapters of mm -hmm. adventures that they have that serve no purpose. Yeah, they fight these trees for no reason. They journey through the dainty Chinatown full of porcelain figures again for no reason. They finally come across like all these animals in the forest and the lion defeats a giant spider in the span of two sentences. And so that kind of serves a purpose because he's going to go there and be king of the animals when he's done. But then we come across the hammerheads. The only thing with the hammerheads is that it uses the the flying monkeys for the third time. So Dorothy, you know, has used all of her turns with the golden cap. And then we finally reach Glinda. It takes so long. It takes so long to get to Glinda. And then we get to Glinda and she immediately solves everybody's problems. Again, 
should have just gone to Glinda in the first place. So mm-hmm, you would think she asks for the golden cap and she uses it to get the scarecrow and the tin man and the cowardly lion to the places where now they're going to stay. And then she's going to give the cap back to the king of the monkeys so that the monkeys are not going to be slaves to anybody anymore. So she frees the monkeys. So good job, Glinda. Mm-hmm. We love that. We for love Glinda. that. Yeah. And then she tells Dorothy, she's like, oh, you've had the power to go home all along. Those silver shoes will take you home. And so Dorothy taps the heels together three times. She says, take me home to Aunt Em. And she returns home. And uh, the final chapter is like literally a paragraph where Dorothy lands in Kansas. Aunt Em says, where have you been? Dorothy says, I've been in Oz. And that's the end. That's the end of this book. (laughs) It wraps up as quickly as Alice in Wonderland. Has Dorothy grown as a person or learned anything on this journey? No, she hasn't. Not that we know of. She is. One of the most stagnant characters in children's literature. Well, luckily, we have some criteria that will hopefully address that. Indeed. Let's talk about those criteria points. Our first criteria this month is going to be, to no one's surprise, define and explore your version of Oz. It's our our same criteria we've had for Wonderland and for Neverland. We need to see what your version of this world looks like. Absolutely. Our second criteria is to develop we have developed the witch as an adversary i'm gonna say develop an adversary it's almost always going to be the witch of the west but i agree with you i think it'd be really fascinating to see somebody make the wizard your villain Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but develop the witch of the west because we don't hear anything about her until we're in the emerald city right she is defeated completely by accident and apart from the winkies it doesn't really have any impact on anybody else Yep. And so I'd need her to be developed as a character and I need her role in the conflict of this story to be enhanced. For sure. Our third criteria is going to be to give Dorothy a character arc that will fit your modern audience. So it's kind of combining a little bit of like develop Alice and a little bit of our looking at the themes of Peter Pan, but focusing specifically on Dorothy and her growth. Yeah, because there isn't any in this novel. And again, it's it's because it's just supposed to be, here's a little girl and she went on an adventure and doesn't it sound like fun? Hallmark of early children's literature. However, I need more now. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I'm a modern reader. I need my main character to have flaws, to do things on purpose, <laughs> not by accident. Give her some agency. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm interested to see if everyone does the same thing. Do they all teach Dorothy the same lesson, or or are there different ways to interpret this? Yeah, that'll be an interesting thing to check back in yeah. on at the end of all of this. So, we have four retellings of The Wizard of Oz we are going to look at this month. The first is going to be the 1939 Judy Garland classic, we got to talk about it because everything else really is so influenced by that version. So we're starting there. Next, we are going to talk about the Broadway musical, The Wiz. We are going to look at both the original Broadway production. I think we're also going to touch a little bit about the movie with Diana Ross and Michael Jackson. And we're going to look at The Wiz Live that came out a few years ago. Then we're going to look at The Muppets Wizard of Oz. I am super excited to talk about this one. I'm so excited for this. Have you seen it before? 
I have. I saw okay. it when it was first aired on TV. Yeah, me too. I have not watched it since. Likewise. All I remember is Miss Piggy in an eye patch. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I got. Look, we wanted Muppets in The Snow Queen. We wanted Muppets in Jack and the Beanstalk. And we, we were not satisfied. So we said, let's just do the Muppets. So we're doing it. And we are going to wrap up this month <laughs> with Wicked by Gregory Maguire. And the musical Wicked. And so the we, musical. And I'm very excited to talk about the musical. Yeah, I am not yeah. excited to read Wicked by Gregory Maguire. It is a it is a long, long, but I will dense do it. book. But there's no way we cannot talk about Wicked when we it comes to, to adapting The Wizard of Oz. So since there's no Disney version, we will wrap the month up with Wicked. I had an overwhelming urge to start singing. Uh, literally last night I saw Eden Espinosa. I know. It was I know, amazing. I'm jealous. It was amazing. Quite jealous. <laughs> but that is our Wizard of Oz month. And we would love for you to uh, journey along with us this month. and. That's going to be fairly easy for the first few weeks because we're very movie heavy uh, mm-hmm. this particular month. So please uh, watch along with us, especially the 1939 film that is easily accessible. The Wiz is fairly easy to get a hold of as well. And uh, my copy of The Muppets Wizard of Oz came into my local library very quickly. So, yeah, I don't think it's the most popular Muppets adaptation. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> but it's out there. Yes. So we would absolutely love for you to watch along with us this month. And we want to hear from you. We want to know what you think about all of this. And you can find us at our Facebook page of Slippers and Spindles, on our Instagram of Slippers and Spindles, and at our brand new Patreon. That's right. And we would love to have your support through Patreon if that's financially feasible for you. Like we said, there's only two tiers. $1 a month buys you into all of those fun perks. If that is not an option for you, that's totally okay. If you still want to help us out, tell a friend about the podcast or leave a five-star review in Apple Podcasts and Spotify because it helps other people find us. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you next week. Bye, friends. Bye. And so they go and they rebuild the Scarecrow and they rebuild the Tin Man. And now I'm going to pause because my husband's coming in the front door. Interrupting my brilliant commentary. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I still love you. Uh-huh. What was I saying? Oh, something brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I try to give you good episode tag material whenever I, yeah. I can. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs>